Welcome to Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care Podcast, a show featuring conversations with people living with cancer, caregivers, survivors, loved ones, and the bereaved. Hosted by oncology social workers, Cancer Out Loud takes a closer look at the cancer experience using the power of storytelling. This season, we're talking about maintaining hope through survivorship, coping with rare cancer diagnoses, navigating shared decision-making, coping as a caregiver, and much more. This podcast is produced by Cancer Care, the leading national organization providing free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Malfettis, and I am an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. With us today, we have Chris Christensen. Welcome, Chris. I want to just jump right in and have you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Great. Thank you for having me. I am a father of four daughters and am married to my wife for the past 26 years. Prior to cancer, I was the director of learning and development with pharmaceutical companies, where I would make sure that everybody got trained, that all of the appropriate curriculum was developed, and that we could deliver it in multiple languages all across the globe. And I have been known to play a fair bit of golf. In fact, I've wasted a lot of time, money, and golf balls in playing golf. And I love riding my motorcycle, although I don't get to do that anymore. So there's just a little bit about me. Thank you so much for sharing all that. And we are so happy to have you here. So I want to start with the diagnosis. Tell us a little bit about it when you were first diagnosed and any information on it that you'd like to share with our listeners. I was first diagnosed with chondrosarcoma, a rare bone cancer on September 3rd of 2020. When they found the tumor, it was advanced stage three and just about to go metastatic. And so the orthopedic oncologist with whom I was working said we needed to act and act quickly. Otherwise, I was going to be in big trouble. And so on September 22nd, 2020, just uh, three short weeks later, I had to go in for a major surgery called a hemipelvectomy, where the pelvis on the left side with the hip and the leg had to be amputated in order to get rid of the tumor and any residual cancer cells that might be in the surrounding tissue. Since then, I've had to have numerous surgeries. In fact, I've had nine follow-up surgeries to this, including one which was particularly troublesome. While I was in the hospital, I contracted an infection called C. diff, and it infected my large intestine to the point where my large intestine died and I was filled with all kinds of infections so badly that I went into septic shock and they had to put me in the ICU. And according to my wife, I had almost died while I was in the ICU on three different occasions, but they were fortunate enough to save me. But the ultimate solution to that was requiring my large intestine to be completely removed. So unfortunately, That's the biggest side effect to my cancer. I didn't undergo radiation or chemotherapies. It was just surgery. That apparently was the only solution to my type of cancer. Oh my goodness. My life has been altered completely. This was life-changing. 
for me. With the loss of my leg, obviously, I couldn't do much of the normal activities of life anymore. So walking, I had to get fitted with a prosthetic leg. Driving my car, I had to switch cars from one that I love to drive that had a manual transmission to one that has an automatic transmission. Golfing was at first not possible because, of course, I didn't have a a leg or at least balance on an artificial leg. However, I've started to pick it up again since then. My cancer recovery was so long that my employer was not able to keep my job open long enough for me to keep that job and get back to work once my recovery was sufficiently advanced. And so, unfortunately, I lost my job and am on disability leave. And I will probably be on disability leave until I can find another job, which is an open question at this point. So my career was impacted as well. And then, of course, my family life has been impacted. I have to rely upon them. So it's really affected everything in my life, especially just the mundane day-to-day things, which I never had even thought about in the past. You know, you just never crosses your mind all of the mundane things you do and how something like that could be affected. I was thinking about that as you were just sharing all that information because we don't realize how much we utilize all our body parts for, or even how much we do as an individual and how certain things can take that away from us. So I'm I'm sure individuals listening will really appreciate you sharing that because it seems like it had a really big impact on you and your family. Well, yeah, absolutely. Between all of the changes that we've all had to undergo, plus the fear of losing my life, everybody suffered psychologically as well as physically. And so it takes a lot of work to get people in the family running back on an even keel and making sure that everybody's functioning well in their own roles in their various stations of life. And so it takes a lot of work and a lot of time and especially a lot of love and patience. Mm -hmm. And with that, I think we're really on the pathway to healing. I love that you bring that up, love and patience. Those are really two important words. How did love and patience guide your family and guide you throughout this process? I made a conscious decision while I was in the hospital that I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. And I thought and I thought and I thought, how can I avoid doing that? Because the temptation is ever present. And one day it hit me like a bolt of lightning. I needed to find ways to serve other people. And you're laying in a hospital bed. I was there for three and a half months in the hospital recovering. And when you're laying in bed for three and a half months, there's not a lot of ways that you can serve people. So I realized that the only way I could serve people was to try to make everybody's life just a little bit better for having come to see me in my room whenever they showed up. So whenever the doctors or the nurses or the cleaning staff or whomever it happened to be would show up, I would tell them a joke. I would find out about what's going on in their life. I would try to make them laugh. I would try to brighten their day in whatever I could. And so I found out that service was one of those key elements towards negative thinking. And in fact, when I came home, I tried to instill that into the lives of my family members. And so we started actively, consciously pursuing opportunities to provide service. 
Now that said, we have gone down rabbit holes. It's not springtime and roses every day. Some days are really, really hard. In fact, there have been times when emotions run really high, feelings get really hurt. Sometimes harsh words get spoken to each other that you regret later, but you can't pull back. And so somehow you've got to fix those relationships. And so you've really got to be diligent and disciplined and thoughtful and try to get outside of your own being and focus externally. Hopefully there are more good days than there are bad days. We'd have to evaluate that with my wife and children, however. We'd have to poll them. (laughs) I'm so glad that you bring that up, you know, the good days and the bad days, because a lot of times with cancer, there is so much negativity that can come with it. But finding those small positives can really seems like it really guided you in a good path. You keep talking about your your wife and your children, and that's amazing. Tell us more about them, what the support looked like, how they helped throughout this. Absolutely. So I have four daughters. They're all in college except the youngest one who is in high school. She's going to graduate next year. And my oldest daughter has just started medical school. And so when I came home from the hospital, Of course, I still had all of these open wounds that needed to be changed. And I had an ostomy surgery. So I had to, you know, I have the ostomy equipment uh, attached to my external stomach. And all of this stuff needed to be taken care of. And I didn't have core strength anymore. And I didn't have the ability to manage my own physical well-being. And so my daughter, who's now in medical school, and my wife took care of my wounds and uh, my daily needs, my daily, you know, just, you know, the hygiene kinds of needs. And so they were there consistently. And my youngest daughter, actually, her job was to make sure I got all of my medications at the right time, that my blood pressure, temperature, and pulse were checked at the right time, several times a day, every day. And So then the other kids had various other responsibilities along the way, too. They actually actively saw opportunities to extend their reach and make a difference in the family. And then my wife, who was quickly becoming overwhelmed, learned to lean on them very heavily, too. So it was a very big growing experience for everyone. Now, of course, that made me feel really guilty because here I had tried to do so much for my family in the past. And now all of those responsibilities were parceled out across everybody. And so it's a humble pill that you have to swallow in order to see that happen. And But yet they, they really rolled up their sleeves and they got in there and they really did a great job. I know you mentioned earlier about different tasks that you used to complete. And now was there anything that as their caregivers that they said that was helpful, not helpful? Yeah. So there were times when I would get very frustrated at things. For example, I have an ostomy and that's new to me. And it's not exactly the most pleasant of experiences to live with in this life. And with that ostomy, of course, it requires changing several times during the day or emptying several times during the day. And it would drive me nuts because as I would try to change it, I would create a mess everywhere. And so I had to rely on my daughter to come in and help do that, which was humbling. And it was humbling for her, too, because, you know, it's not exactly the cleanest, nicest thing in the world. But I would express my frustration. And she was always there 
in a very pleasant way. And she would constantly remind me, it's okay, dad. And you'll get used to this. But basically she was cheerleading for me. So would everybody when it was time for me to do physical therapy. Early on, I had to walk around the house on one leg and a walker so I could move around the house and uh, do whatever it was I needed to do when I could start walking again, when I could start getting out of bed. And so they were there as cheerleaders. They were keeping track of the number of steps I could take before I got tired, stand up before I had to sit down and all those kinds of things. And then once I got fitted with my artificial leg, they took great joy out of taking videos of me walking initially through a set of parallel bars that physical therapists use, where I'd walk back and forth up and down a little runway with these parallel bars hanging onto it until I got used to my leg. And gradually, as I got more and more comfortable with my leg, I could start using crutches. Well, they were there with video cameras on their phones, capturing my efforts to walk. And then they would sit down with me and debrief how my technique was and what I could do to improve and how I needed to stand differently and how I needed to shift my weight. So they were playing miniature physical therapists, but miniature psychologists. And to that end, they were miniature psychologists with each other as well as with me when they saw one another breaking down or having a hard time. They could come to each other in rescue and save them from their own downward spirals. Now, again, it wasn't always successful, and sometimes it made matters worse because they're just young and not very experienced. However, overall, I think it has been a very good bonding experience for them with each other and then them with me. And so, you know, uh, that was true not only with my children, but my wife. We've managed to learn more about each other We have to deal with the good and the bad of each other and make one another vulnerable, then we can really get into working with it and dealing with things. And sometimes it's required the assistance of therapists and others to provide us meaningful coaching and input on how to do things. But overall, that that act of being vulnerable in front of everybody, especially with my wife, and being open to feedback and criticism has been key to my psychological well-being and I think for theirs as well. Yeah, and it it sounds like the relationship almost changed for a positive during the cancer journey. I'm curious were there any friendships that changed during this or were there any friendships that were there as caregivers also as support? Yes. Thank you for mentioning that. We have a number of friends that came and supported us, some of whom are local, but many of them who came from far distances away, including some extended family members. And when they all came, it was was amazing to see I wasn't home for three months, so my wife was there managing all of this. For those first several months, we had a constant stream of meals brought into our house from friends and family members. Every day my wife would come see me in the hospital, one of her friends or one of her family members would be at our house as an adult woman managing, overseeing what was going on in the house and just to be a stabilizing influence. Not that she was necessarily replacing my wife, but that she was just there to help stabilize and keep an eye on things so that way if she saw the kids were melting down for some reason, she could step in and try to help out. 
And the same with family members. I had my brothers show up. I had my cousins show up. I had several people that I'm, you know, have extended family relationships with second cousins and cousins by marriage and so forth that showed up. But it was interesting. I found that most of the people who showed up when they came to visit me in the hospital were there to comfort me. They came providing solace of some sort and to cheer me up and to make sure that I was doing okay. But it was interesting that some of these people actually came to visit me in the hospital because of their own psychological challenges. And they looked to me to cheer them up. It was like I was being their therapist from my hospital bed and making sure they were doing okay with the fact that I was in this really vulnerable physical situation where my life had completely changed. It was fascinating to me. And so we got to experience both of those perspectives. Very strange indeed. That is, that's really interesting. And it sounds like it was almost a positive for you that you enjoyed having that happen with your friendships and your family relationships. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah. It, it was very strengthening to many of those relationships. My cousin, for example, she flew in from uh, Kansas City and she came, I was in New Jersey in the hospital. So she came into New Jersey from Kansas City and she came to the hospital and visited me for one evening. She was there for several hours one evening and she saw that obviously I haven't been able to take a shower in many, many weeks. And she saw that I was getting a little scruffy in the beard and looked a little greasy. And so bless her heart. She got some things from the nurses and she washed my my head. I'm bald. And so she got this hair washing cap thing from the nurses. And she took the time to wash my head and shave my face. And I cried because of the service that she offered me. And it bonded us in ways that we had never been bonded before. When we were kids, we were best friends. And now we were more than best friends. She was really taking care of me. And now I feel much closer to her than I have ever in my life. That is such an act of kindness that she did and, and such a way to gain that support for one another. It's amazing that you had that. And I know we've been talking about family and friends. Were there other individuals that you connected with, with a similar diagnosis? Or even when I know you mentioned you were in the hospital for three months, whether it was peer matching or support groups, any ways that you connected with others? Well, there are several different kinds of connections I was able to make. First of all, while I was in the hospital, I managed to make friends with all of the nursing staff on the floor. I think it started because I tried to make people's lives better. I would dole out the chocolates and the brownies and the other goodies that people brought to my hospital room. I would dole them out to the nurses all the time. And so I think the word got around that if you want a snack, come to Chris's room in the hospital. And so all of the nurses eventually came. And so then we started, you know, I started to try to make their lives feel better. And so pretty soon they would just come by to visit. And to this day, I keep in contact with a couple of them. And so we have connections there and they help me make sense of things because they see all kinds of cancer patients. And they help provide me with a tremendous amount of perspective and encouragement. But then others that I've been connected with include folks from various cancer societies, 
there are many support groups that are out there and I participated in a couple and the people in them are always welcoming and highly supportive and want to do their best to make sure that you have the tools you need in order to be successful. And when one of them is struggling, it's interesting to me by how quickly the others in the group come to their aid. It seems to me like they're brothers in arms almost. You know, you're fighting this battle of cancer together. And once you've fought that battle, you become forever bonded. And so there's a lot of those people whom I've happened to get to meet. And then there are people that I've met through the prosthetic community. Because now I'm an amputee as well as a cancer survivor. I work with the prosthetist who initially hooked me up with a couple of people who had not the same, but similar kinds of surgeries as mine. Mine's hemipelvectomy, where my pelvis has gone on the left side. But then there's a kind of surgery called hip disarticulation, where somebody loses their leg, but they keep the pelvic structure. The treatment for it is roughly the same, but there are some differences. Wow. And how did you find these organizations? Was it just through Google search or did individuals like the medical team recommend it? How did you find them? Well, it started off with the social worker in the hospital who was acting kind of like a case manager for me. She came by one day with the name of one support group and suggested that I might need a support group once I got out of the hospital. And she was right. And so she gave me the name of a support group and a website that I should go to. I didn't get any more information than that. But I started with that website and the name and started to explore around and found that I could make connections where they, this, this cancer group would pair me up with somebody who had a similar cancer diagnosis and treatment as I had. And it took them many weeks to find somebody who fit the bill, but they did. And that person and I would speak fairly frequently. And I realized, now it wasn't a lot. It was you know probably once a month. But I realized that there was great value in having a support community. And so then I started independently Google searching for other support groups that are out there to see who could help in any way possible. And so I found men's support groups. I found bone cancer support groups. I found individual counselors. I found organizations such as yours. And it's just kind of grown. I can say that it's been very beneficial to me and has provided me a tremendous amount of comfort and relief. And I'm probably participating in maybe six different organizations right now, though I'm not as active as some of the members are where I'm taking like leadership roles and actively leading discussion groups or meetings or anything like that, I probably need to pick my game up a little bit and try to serve those groups by being more active. But right now, I just am a participant who's benefiting from the experience and expertise of these others. That's amazing that you are able to find those resources and organizations. And it sounds like it all started with that social worker in the hospital. And speaking about the hospital social worker, how did you know that you found the right medical team? What helped with choosing that? Or tell us a little bit about the medical team. Well, that is an interesting story in and of itself. 
I didn't have time really to look at a care team myself because everything happened so quickly. I found out I had cancer on a Wednesday. I told my manager and, and her manager that I had cancer and I had to take some time off. And her manager is connected to the cancer hospital in Newark, New Jersey. And so he wanted me to get in contact with some of his friends there who were big time. And I tried to reach out to them. They couldn't get back to me in time, even for a second opinion before we had to act. But the doctor who originally found the tumor, he was a pain management specialist. And he found the tumor quite by accident in an MRI. And he didn't know what to do. So he called one of his former practice partners, who happened to be an orthopedic surgeon, and said he had a patient with a bone tumor. What should I do? And the retired orthopedic surgeon told him, if it's cancer of the bones, what you need to do is send him to my daughter. He said, my daughter is a highly ranked, highly trained orthopedic oncologist. And she has all of these degrees and certifications from all of these places, and she's very good. Now, I didn't know any of this because the very next day after meeting with this pain management doctor, I was sitting in a consult with this orthopedic oncologist. And she was the one who told me all the details about how bad the tumor was and how we needed to act quickly. And she had already gotten several opinions from the cancer board's at two different hospitals by the time I'd shown up. So she had already collected second opinions on my behalf. And they were unanimous in their decision as to what needed to be done. And so through her practice, the care team was pretty well established. She is the primary surgeon in charge, and then some of her practice partners, and then the extended oncology practices like hematology, oncology, and so forth were all connected through the bigger cancer institute of which her practice was just a part. And so it was kind of an ad hoc, but within a system cancer team that was pulled together. And even though it was quite by chance, I got to tell you, they have been top notch and highly, highly supportive of me and frankly, owe my life to them. That's exactly what it sounded like, that it almost just happened so quickly and it was just about connections and who you knew at that time and it led you down a really good path of really good support. Well, indeed. In fact, the orthopedic oncologist that, I, that I'm talking about, she happens to be only one of about 24 surgeons in the country who is capable of doing this kind of surgery. There are only a few on the East Coast where we live that are qualified, but she happens to be practicing only one hour from my house. So how fortunate is that? I don't believe in coincidence. It sounds like coincidence, but I believe it's quite a blessing that here her practice is one hour for me and she's one of the 24 qualified surgeons in the country to be able to do this. I'm a blessed man. Yeah, no, that, that's amazing that that was able to take place. And I'm going to kind of switch gears here a little bit. 
but going back to when you were first diagnosed, that was really in the beginning of the pandemic. So I'm I'm wondering, did it impact activities that you could engage in or how you interacted with other individuals? What was that impact like? Yeah, it did impact a number of relationships and activities like that. We would have friends come over when I was at home, but because of the pandemic and because of my potentially compromised immune system, everybody had to stay at least six feet away from me. So typically when we meet with good friends, you know, there's usually warm embraces and handshakes and all of that sort of thing. But when these friends come over or came over then, it was always at a distance and it felt really weird and created sort of an emotional roadblock between us, which was kind of, it made it funky. But, you know, we, we worked through it, and they're still our friends, and we get to meet them now under much different circumstances, obviously. But then it was just, it, it was just weird. It was, it was different. And it was so much outside of your control. You know, there wasn't much that you could do either, or your family even. You know, it was something that was thrown your way along with the cancer. Yeah, that's a very good point. I had no control over contracting cancer. I had very little control over whether I got the surgery or not. I had no control over what kind of surgery it was. I had no control over contracting a severe infection. I had no control over, in fact, I had no say in the removal of my large intestine. They did it when I was unconscious and just about to die. So I had no say in it. And so there was a total loss of control in my life. And I felt it. And I'll tell you, it created some serious psychological roadblocks for me that I'm still trying to recover from. In fact, I've seen several therapists about this issue of control and what I can control and what I can't. And they've been very helpful in helping me to see that even though sometimes it feels like there's no control, I have no control in my life that there are things that I can control and those things I need to take great comfort in and try to not control them per se, but manage them and live with them in such a way that I can feel good about what it is I'm doing and then let everything else happen the way it is just going to happen anyway, because my worrying about it isn't going to change it. Yeah. And I I think a lot of our listeners would be able to resonate with that because not only with cancer, but with a lot of things out there, control is a big portion of it. And you're right, we, we don't have a lot of control over it. And that, that could be really hard. And kind of going along with that control, and you mentioned all the losses that came with that too. What helped you with the hope and the gratitude that I hear you say throughout this conversation, what, what kind of helped with that hope and gratitude? Yeah, I felt the losses very tangibly. And there were times when I counted the losses and I would add them up and I would write about them in my journal and I would get frustrated. And then sometimes I would even get angry because look at all I've lost. I lost my leg. I've lost my pelvis. I've lost my colon. I've lost my job. I've lost my career. I almost lost my life and so on and so on. And those could be very, very challenging. But I attended a support group 
for cancer survivors. And one of the things they did was they gave me a gratitude journal. It's a structured journal with some prompting questions and some activities in it. And you do it on a scheduled basis. But you go through this and you think about and record things that you can control and things that are happening to you and relationships you have and other things in your life that make you feel happy and grateful. And so you record them, you write them down, and then you think about those and how they're connected to other things and to the people in your life. And the more you think about it and the more you write about it, the more the gratitude starts taking over and you can you can use that as a defense mechanism against against the losses against the feeling of loss and so i find myself doing that now on a regular and consistent basis where i keep a journal and i journal about it about my experience all the time almost daily i'm writing entries in my journal about the goodness and the badness of my experience but i always try to end it on a positive note furthermore I've actually started writing a blog as soon as I, well, while I was in the hospital, I started writing a blog where I, you know, my friends and my family know about it. Anybody can go find it if they want, but I would use that as a way to keep in touch with them and so they could keep track of my status. But I promised them that I wouldn't hide anything. When things were good, I would talk about it. I would discuss it. And when things were bad, I would discuss it. And then I realized that I could write some things that were humorous in there and things that were connected to things that, you know, when I was a college student, I studied philosophy. And so I would connect some of the things that were going on to various philosophies I'd studied when I was in college 30 years ago. And it's made a difference in my life when other people are benefited by my experience, then that is one more piece of gratitude. In fact, it's a huge piece of gratitude. Those almost sound like coping mechanisms also that you utilize between journaling and writing through a blog. That's amazing work on your part. And if you feel comfortable, Chris, sharing with us and sharing with our listeners the blog, and if if listeners want to access that, if you feel comfortable sharing that with us, I'm sure it would be helpful to others. Sure. My blog is Chris Christensen, K-R-I-S-K-R-I-S-T-E-N-S-E-N dot com slash blog. That's awesome. That's that's amazing work and really sounds like great strategies that you've been utilizing. Now, one thing I want to make sure gets said that I don't want to underplay it, but the role of counselors, of therapists has been crucial in my recovery and in my ability to be grateful. So with the help of skilled counselors, I've been able to see things and possibilities that I'd never seen before. They've given me great coping mechanisms and tools that I can use to catch myself when I start failing at coping, when I start feeling really negative, and when things go wrong in whatever corner of my life, they have been there. And the extent to which I have been completely open and honest with them 
completely vulnerable and sharing sharing everything and not withholding a bit i found that to that extent they've been able to help me and their help has been invaluable so i would just encourage anybody who's going through a challenging time to find good therapists it's got some stigma attached to it i know but i feel no stigma in my life around it in fact i only feel gratitude for the people who have been well trained and who are so willing to help and who have been so lovely in the way they've helped me. That is great advice, Chris. And it sounds like the supports, whether it was individual or groups or blogging, journaling, has been really helpful. And is there any other advice that you would give to someone in a similar situation as you, along with maybe seeking support? Is there any other advice that you would give? There's one piece of advice in addition to all that that I would really want people to focus on. And it stems out of my work with my prosthetic leg, but it's applicable across the board in terms of the overall experience. And that is resilience or stubbornness. My wife will call it pigheadedness. I just call it stubborn. But I wear this prosthetic leg and I've fallen down numerous times and it's hard to use and it was scary to use and it was painful to use. And there were times I wanted to give up using it and just stick with a wheelchair for the rest of my life. But then I thought, no, I am not going to stick with the wheelchair. I am going to thrive. And even though this hurts, I will not let it get the better of me. So I practiced and I practiced and I practiced. And just yesterday I was with my prosthetist and he said, I've done better with this kind of experience than 90% of the patients he works with, which was a great external validation. But stubbornness, commitment, making and sticking to a plan and being committed to your own goals. Have them, stay with them, measure them, evaluate them, talk about them, but have some goals, make a plan, and no matter what happens, work it, even if you feel like giving up. That's amazing advice, and we really appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Wow, and we appreciate you being here today and sharing all that and everything that you shared about your story and the obstacles, but also how you've overcome them and the strategies you've utilized and where you're at today. It has been such a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. I owe a lot to Cancer Care. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care podcast. Cancer Care is the leading national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services, including resource navigation, cancer-focused counseling, support groups, educational resources, and financial assistance to anyone affected by cancer. You can visit us online at cancercare.org or call our toll-free HOPELINE at 800-813-HOPE. That's 800-813-4673 to speak with a master's prepared oncology social worker.